Good afternoon. My name is Lamitria Hall, and I am the site director for Year Up Baltimore, which we have a pilot um, operation located on the campus of Baltimore City Community College. My charge is not to tell you about me, but to tell you a little bit about our leader. Our leader name is Jural Shertavian, and he has written a New York's bestseller already, book entitled A Year Up. When I first looked at the cover and I thought about what he has done as a pioneer in this movement, I thought of a song. This song for old schoolers is called Wake Up Everybody by featuring Teddy Pendergrass and Harold Melvin and the Blue Notes. And my daughter allowed me to listen to John Legend version and comment and Mel Melanie Falong this morning. So that message of wake up everybody is still spreading. And that's what represents our leader and founder, Gerald Shatavian. So he's here to wake you up with a message about moving our young adults through the times of helping to close the opportunity divide. So I thank you, and I present to you Gerald Shatavian. Um, good afternoon to you all, and uh, thanks for being here today. And Lamitio, thank you very much. You're an amazing leader. Uh, and I appreciate the staff and uh, leaders from Baltimore City Community College who are here as well. Thank you very much. Um, it's, I'm honored not only to be here, but to work with such wonderful people. Uh, 25 years ago, uh, I walked into a housing development on the lower side of Manhattan. Uh, at that point, it was in the late 80s. It was the most heavily photographed crime scene in New York City. Um, that was at the height of the uh, crack and AIDS epidemic in this country, uh, and uh, as many folks uh, recall, that ravaged communities, literally ravaged communities. I walked in there because I was matched with a 10-year-old boy uh, who is uh, from the Dominican Republic, who I was matched with as a little brother through the Big Brothers, Little Brothers program. Um, David uh, Heredia uh, became my little brother, and I spent every Saturday uh, of my life with him over the next uh, three years uh, and I would either some days go up during the week after I worked on Wall Street at the time, and I'd, so I'd walk up only 10 minutes, imagine, from the uh, epicenter of the financial world uh, in prosperity to the most heavily photographed crime scene in New York City in a 10-minute walk. Um, but I ended up spending every Saturday with David, and uh, he became my greatest teacher. People always say, who is your greatest teacher? And uh, you know, when you think back to school or college, and if my greatest teacher was a 10-year-old uh, Dominican boy. And so because what, what David taught me and what I learned through David, and indeed his four older brothers, um, uh, Willie, Carlos, Julio, and Edwin, uh, who I know all today, and David now is really a member of our extended family. He's now 35 years old. Um, but what I learned uh, through David was one of the most talented, hardworking, uh, motivated young men I'd ever met. And that he was still a boy at that point. And what he lacked really completely was knowledge of how to get into the mainstream of this country. So it was just so striking to me. Here's a young man who had everything that he really needed at his core, the brains, the ability, the motivation, and completely disconnected from how do you take all that and get into the mainstream of this country. Um, and that struck me as a huge waste of, of human capital and human potential at a time in this country where we don't have anyone to waste if we are to be a competitive country and also to run a civil society and a democracy. We cannot be wasting uh, young people. So it was, it was through that experience with David. Uh, the, the book A Year Up is really a book about human transformation, uh, but the first transformation was my own, and that was truly understanding what was happening in our inner cities and realizing that it was wrong from every way I could see it. It was economically, morally, and socially not appropriate that young David, who was, I loved and who's really a son, as his son, couldn't realize his potential. Um, and it wasn't because he wasn't motivated. Um, and so what, uh, that really truly was the inspiration for starting the Year Up program uh, several years later. I ended up writing my essays to get into graduate school about starting this program. So in 1989, I was writing about it, or typing about it in one of those old typewriters. Um, in fact, the admissions director from Harvard Business School sent me the essay 
that I had written in 1989, and it was on that typed piece of paper, you know, the whiteout stuff that we used to use. I don't think anyone under the age of 40 knows what whiteout is, but... Um, and, uh, and so I was thinking about it in 89. I got very fortunate. I was in business software about 10 years. When I sold the company I started in software, it put me in a position to say, let's go back to those essays and now put all of your time, focus, energy, and, and it's really heart. We're in the heart business as much as anything else. Put that into trying to create a program to close what I now came to understand was the opportunity divide in this country. And the opportunity divide in the country is, unfortunately, for millions of Americans their potential is being limited by things like their zip code, the bank balance of their parents, the educational system they happen to attend, and the color of their skin. And that is, was my reality, having been with David for many, many years. And I'll tell you the story of how uh, true it was for me. It was the day I walked into David's elementary school. This would have been his uh, fourth or fifth grade teacher. And I was there for parents' night because his mom didn't speak English. And she said, could you please go as David's parent? Uh, so I went into the classroom and I said, hi, I'm, I was so excited. I'd never done this before. I said, hi, I'm David's parent. And uh, I'm here to hear how my kind of son is doing. And the teacher looked up and he said, David, 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 which one is he? And so right there I got a complete visceral dose. Here's a young boy I love and his teacher doesn't know who he is. And this is parents' night. And I thought, what an, and you talk about educational inequity in this country and educational inequality. Well, I don't have to go any more than that story and to tell you what educational inequality is in America today. Um, and so what I've come to learn is that was David. And for me, it was the power of one. So I, I was transformed in that relationship. But what I didn't understand at the time, and I do understand now, is David is part of what is now 6.7 million young people, young adults, in this country, who are what's called disconnected, not a word we like, we don't think that's a, we think it's a pejorative term in general, but called disconnected by the government, which means you're out of school, out of work, and don't have more than a high school degree. Right? That's almost 20% of every single waking, walking 16 to 24-year-old in America today. You think, imagine trying to run a country, a democracy, a civil society, when one out of five because that's the number, one out of five of your young people fits that description. You can't do it. So we then, as we looked at this challenge and said, my goodness, this is much bigger, much broader. Uh, I remember, uh, in fact, <laughs> Brian, when you drove me into East Baltimore, and I said, could you please take me to East Baltimore because we're here serving young people in Baltimore. I'd actually like to see where our students live because the majority come from East Baltimore. And that was... Still to my life, one of the most eye-opening journeys I've taken is to realize we live in a country where a couple, a mile away from here, you would, hard to believe uh, that our country allows this to happen. It's, in a, it's just not right. So these things were very strong in me. They led me to gather the conviction and the belief and the courage to try to start a program to somehow fix this or close this challenge. What we did, I was able to do with, not really myself, I've always been blessed to be able to hire people a lot smarter than I am. It's obviously it's easy to do because I'm not too bright. So hiring smart people was relatively uh, easy. But we put together a team of people back in 2000 to try to address this challenge and came up with a, a model uh, called Year Up that uh, in one year helps a young adult go from poverty to a professional career. Uh, and that's what we do. And they are in college at the same time earning credit while they do it here in Baltimore through Baltimore City Community College. Um, and so we do that, just so you have a quick sense. Students come to, uh, in this case in Baltimore, Baltimore City Community College, but they're enrolled in our program as well at the same time. We have a dress code. We have expectations of behavior and attitude, how we treat one another. Uh, we have a whole code of conduct. And you know what? It's beautiful, and our students love it because it's respectful, it's mature, and they want to be treated like that, I promise you. And after that six months of education and training, which they usually learn both professional skills, how do you behave in a professional environment, as well as something marketable like finance or technology, they then go into internships for six months with companies where they're here in town. It's from Morgan Stanley, British Sugar, uh, Johns Hopkins, 
uh, as well as about 250 companies around the country, because now Europe not only operates just in Baltimore, but in uh, nine other cities. In fact, next month we're opening up in Miami. Um, in the model uh, that we operate is help a person gain the skills, get them the experience, and in one year, they're really in a truly different position to, uh, to achieve their potential. And so we said, okay, this is working. It's been working for 12 years. It's been evaluated by social scientists really well. And it's been proven to be causal, right, that it actually causes something rather than correlated. And we said, we need to shine a spotlight on this because we touch 1,500 young people a year across the country. Um, what would it look like if we touched 15,000 or 150,000? Because that number is measured, remember, 6.7 million. We need to see solutions that can start to scale not just to our level of 1,500, but go beyond that. So we said we need to shine a spotlight on this. Um, and so in writing the book year up, we followed six young people for more than a year uh, who happened to have gone to our New York class um, and followed them from the very start all the way through to training and internships and graduation. Uh, and I tell you that what they show as much as anything else is our young adults in this country, especially our urban young adults, are assets and not liabilities. And they're not only assets, but critical components of the U.S. economic engine that our com companies need if we're going to be competitive. And that the adversity our students have faced, because the majority of students who come to us have faced adversity. So we have 12% of our students coming out of foster care. Uh, goodness, uh, quite a few of our parents, uh, students have experienced uh, housing instability or homelessness. Uh, many have had... Uh, challenges with uh, some form of abuse. Um, so they're coming with what some may see as uh, risks. I actually see it as with resiliencies, right? Our young people have learned how to be resilient because they have persevered through some of the toughest times to grow up uh, in some of the toughest neighborhoods in this, in this country. And I'll, I'll read just one clip, a uh, small passage from one of the young men. Uh, his pseudonym is Malik. Uh, and just to tell you how uh, Malik described um, his initial journey prior to getting here and what life was like. Um, Malik, an energetic, somewhat fidgety 18-year-old, loped up to the front and pointed out his own entries on the chart. And this was now the first week of our class when students um, talk about their lifeline in years, and they write up on a chart what happened in their life and then they explain that to each other. We call it a milestones chart. It's something we do in many of our communities to help students initially say where are they starting from. So this was the day of milestones. Uh, they were easy to find. He had chosen a neon green marker. He pointed to his notation for 2006, brother killed. I was at my eighth grade prom. That's when I got the news. I had just got my dance on. The next day was graduation, and I was prom king. My brother Amadou came into the dance. He told me the news that our older brother Bakari was dead. At that time, my mind was almost blank. I went back to my home, and I could see everybody crying and everything, but I still couldn't believe it. I knew my brother was in the streets and all, but it didn't sink in. Then they were telling me how he died. They said that he got set up. He was strangled. They stuffed his body into a trunk, drove it to a dumpster, wrapped him in a trash bag. They put him in the dumpster and set it on fire. And that's when it clicked, those details. And I'm like, nah, you're not serious. When they told me the people that did it, we're all in the same project. So the day after, I went to the spot where they all hang out. My friend gave me a gun. He didn't even give it to me. I took it. I, I got it from him forcefully. I went to that block. I didn't see anybody. So I was like, wow. Either it wasn't meant for it to happen or something, because I know if any one of them was out there, something bad would have happened. I would have tried to get revenge, and that was my mindset. So that was his entry in his chart in 2006. Um, and what uh, was p painful for me to get as close to all of our students in these journeys, this is not like, oh, that's a totally random student. And I know that many of our staff, the staff were here would say, yeah, I bet we wouldn't find a student here in Baltimore who could, couldn't tell you a story of homicide. I'm not kidding you. Um, and that's... Now, this young man, Malik, uh, ended up uh, doing a fantastic job. 
did well in the training, went to UBS, Union Bank of Switzerland, worked uh, well, did well there. Uh, he's now in a bank-sponsored program for gifted young leaders where they're putting him through college and letting him work at the bank in the summers to finance his education. So he'll now graduate, do well, um, and uh, is just in a totally, totally different space. Totally different space. Uh, and he'll be a productive member who is tax-paying, who's doing well, and that's not an abnormal story for some of the young adults that we work with. Um, but it's a story that we wrote for six students. Uh, one of the young women in the book, uh, Cassandra, she told the story. This is probably the hardest one for me. She told me the story of what it's like to live rough in New York City and how she was able to sleep in Central Park in the evening and crawl up into a ball and sleep up on a slide so that she wouldn't be seen from below, so she wouldn't be abused when she was sleeping in the winter in New York City. In the winter, right? And... Uh, and then she'd leave and when she got so cold and go to the subways around 4 or 5 a.m. when they opened up. Um, and she would be at work every morning at 8.30 or at year up. We think of it as work because it's a very professional environment. Um, 8.30 a.m. should be there, ready to, uh, ready to go for the day. And so if, you don't, if we as a society can't conclude that that's resiliency and that's strength and our young people are assets because of what they've endured, we are missing some of the most talented young people in this whole country. Um, and so we wanted to try to shine a spotlight on what's working as an organization um, and to uh, hopefully start to work as we do with these corporations who for some reason uh, haven't seen our young people as talent. And so part of what Europe is trying to do is not only uh, put a spotlight here but help change the minds of corporate leaders to see our young people as talent and start to redefine for themselves who's talented in America and where does talent reside in America today. And that's, uh, we see, we place hundreds of people into companies. State Street Bank, one of the biggest financial institutions in the country, has 250 of our graduates working full-time in their office. Can you imagine that? You multiply that times $30,000 or $40,000 a year of income, and that income is going back into, at least my hometown of Boston, Roxbury, Dorchester, Mattapan, some of the tougher neighborhoods in Boston. You're talking... Ten-plus million dollars of income coming into that community earned by those 250 young people and creating role models as to what it's like to get up every day, put on a suit, and go to a financial institution and do well, get promoted. I mean, this is the way we're going to strengthen this country. And our young adults do not need handouts. We don't believe in handouts. We don't think our students need, nor do they want handouts. They want hand-ups, right? They want opportunity. They want access. They want someone to say, I get the fact that 80% of every job interview in America today has gotten through a personal network. Someone hooked you up and you got an interview. 80%. Why do our students compete for the 20%? Because that's what's happening today. They compete for the 20% because they don't have a personal network to hook you up to a good interview. Um, so let's change that. I was in uh, Washington last night in the district for the graduation of our program in Washington we had about six, 700 people at the graduation. And, uh, and the alumni took an oath as they graduated to support one another, to be part of a community with one another, to help each other uh, network, to find jobs, to be part of a support system. And I think, well, that's happening in Washington. is the same day it's happening in Boston and Seattle and San Francisco and Chicago and Atlanta and Providence. And now Europe's got about 6,000 young people that we've touched. Uh, and this is just a short lifespan for a program. So what we've been able to do is, is prove that this works, uh, prove that our young adults are assets, start to change the mind of our corporate leaders uh, for them to redefine who's talented. And we do a lot of work in Washington to try to, to help Washington see how do they get involved to be productive players in this. I mean, the president came to visit us. It was a beautiful day. Uh, I remember very poignantly, he asked questions, and they told students, he talked to them very honestly. And they said, Mr. President, does racism still exist in this country? And he said, yes, it does. And if you're a victim, you're not going to benefit too much. So don't be a victim. He said, what else, Mr. President? He said, you're too young to have children. And I'll tell you the truth, you're too young to have children. I need you to get stable first. I need you to be strong first. I need you to get an education. And he said, I'm not afraid to tell you that. Um, and... Uh, 
he totally spoke honestly. He'd kicked out all the press because he said, I don't want to talk to the press. I want to talk to the group of 100 young people in front of me. And he said, I notice it's 100% of color. I want to have an honest conversation about it. And for 30, 40 minutes, the President of the United States talked one-on-one honestly with our young people. Um, so I, get, I believe this current administration gets what people like Europe do for a living. Um, and uh, so we've worked a lot with Washington as well um, to try to uh, address some of these challenges. Um, but it, look, at the end of the day, I'll tell you one story. Um, we at Europe believe this is about social and economic justice. That the work we do is inherently about that. Uh, we feel very much that it's a step, and a very small step, but an honest and authentic step in that long journey on civil rights. Uh, that we are honored to play a tiny role in promoting this for the hundreds and now thousands of young people we serve and know that they will be promoting it for others that come after them. Um, and I remember I had uh, uh, John Lewis in my home about a month ago, and uh, John is an amazing leader, congressman from Georgia, uh, that one of ten people alive uh, who were at the uh, March on Washington. He spoke at the March on Washington. He's the only remaining person alive from that. And also, is, if you've seen videos of the crossing of the bridge in uh, Selma, Alabama, the uh, Pettus Bridge, he's at the front of the line. Um, and uh, in a white coat. And so I often, when John was in our home and he spoke to a group of, I don't know, 50, 60, maybe more than 100 people, and, um, and I thought as he talked, I said, John fought for the same things that we fight for today, which was economic and social justice. John walked over that bridge in Selma, Alabama, and he risked his life. Imagine getting up, putting on a suit in a white coat, and saying, I'm probably walking into my death but I will do it because I believe in something. And so when I look at John, I think we, are, we kneel and next to people like John, and we, we fight for the same principles, but we're not risking what John risked, right? So we are lucky to do this work. And as staff members at Europe, we believe deeply we are lucky to do this work and to serve young people who we know will grow up to be our future leaders. And I looked out at our class at Washington yesterday in the in the, uh, in the audience, and I thought, this is the group of people we need leading our country. Um, this is this, I can see it today. And I always say, I'll, my biggest smile will be to sit back in a rocking chair someday and to read in the paper how our young people are leading this country and doing so with an authentic uh, sense of how to include all Americans in what I've always been told is the American dream. just not sure, sure everyone has access to the American dream today. And, but I do believe that our students and our grads will be part of that journey and, and change it. So it's uh, why we wrote a book. We're blessed, and uh, it became a bestseller this week. Um, it was number eight in the New York Times bestseller list and uh, number three in the Wall Street Journal's uh, books. And we just want to get the story out there, as many people as possible. In fact, if anyone here wants to help out locally, we have t- hundreds of volunteers who tutor, mentor, guest speak, take time with a young person, and just, you know what? Just listen. I had someone the other day say, I would mentor Gerald. And listen, this is a gentleman who's like at the top of his game. He said, I'd mentor, but I wouldn't know what to do. I said, do you have two ears? He said, uh, yeah, I do have two ears. I said, that's all you need. You want to mentor a young person? Just listen to them. You'd be present. Be there and consistent. And if you say we're going to have lunch at 2 o'clock, have lunch at 2 o'clock. And show up and be present and listen. That's mentoring. That's helping out a young person. You don't have to tell and do a lot. I've had young men come over my home, uh, one young man, and he calls, can we come over for dinner? I said, yeah, sure. I said, what do you want to talk about? He goes, I don't want to talk about anything. I want to watch you be a father. I said, it's interesting. He said, Gerald, I've never, I'm going to have a child now. I've ne- I have no bone in my body that tells me what fathers do. I do not know what fathers do. So I just want to watch you be a father and just see what you do with kids. And I, uh, I mean, it kind of, it, it made me pause that that's the state of play for that young man and many of the young men certainly uh, we work with. Um, and so we started, as we heard that, we started parenting classes at Yarrow for students who happen to have uh, children themselves to just think about what it may be like uh, to be a parent and how you think about your own role as a parent. Um, so we do that in different uh, cities around the country. Um, so it's, uh, it's a program that uh, I hope... Uh, can touch a lot more people 
is the goal of what, why we started this, and the goal is to look at that 6.7 million young people and to say, look, on our watch, because we've got a watch, right? We've probably got 40 years or so where we are the ones responsible for what gets passed on to the next generation. It is we. We are responsible. No one else. There's no one going to come in on some shining you know, horse, whatever. We are the ones responsible. And in Baltimore, it's our community. And say, what are we going to do? Because our children need to grow up in a democratic civil society. And then you have now 20% of young people out of the game. I can paint you a picture of a not democratically civil society. And the fact is, is we are responsible for this. And that's why uh, you know, we're honored to be in this community because it's been wonderful to be here. You know, every time I come to Baltimore, I love to be here because it's a good community. Um, so I I'll, I'll, uh, won't go on um, too long in terms of speaking, but I'd be more than happy if you had questions, uh, things that I could answer and or address about the program. I'd, I'd be happy to, or just general questions I'd be more than happy to answer any you might have. Thank you. Yes, ma'am. I'm an educational director in an alternative school here in the city. And what we are faced with, I work with young men mostly uh, between the ages of 15 and 19. And they are so despondent and enraged about what has happened to them mm. that they, uh, they're all there as a condition of probation. Mm -hmm. And trying to get these kids motivated, I mean, I would love to hear you speak to them or have them speak to you, but this is something that our teachers are constantly struggling with. You know, how can we motivate? It's a very small school, and mm. we do a lot of the things that you're talking about, and we have a lot of successes. Mm. Don't get me wrong. Mm. But it is very disheartening for these young people. You know, we mm. have said, well, get your GED. That's the key into, into right. the world. Right. But what we're finding out now is that's not always true. Right. You know, had, so, so the so a couple of ideas is the good news is we have folks here who would be more than happy to, you know, figure out how we would connect. And a lot of times it's, um, you know, our students, uh, getting a GED gives you access to our program. So when you say, why get a GED? Because you just get a ticket to year up. Um, and uh, unfortunately, the research would say that a GED doesn't actually do a lot to boost your wages in this country. We have definitive proof that Europe does a heck of a lot to boost your wages. In fact, it was the highest increase in wages I've seen from any youth workforce program in the last 20 years. So we know it works. So the incentive to get the GED is you get a ticket to then apply it to year up. Um, and, uh, and we have an application process where we're looking for motivated young people. Um, but the condition you describe, in fact, there's an article today in the, uh, was either the journal or the post on the papers, that young children under stress, whether it's Whatever stress, however you define stress, but children tend to react similarly when they're placed under a great deal of stress, and it creates anger, depression, and disconnection. We are causing the, what we're observing as a society in young people. And, and by placing them under inordinate amounts of stress, my belief and least experience has been that uh, caring, thoughtful, consistent adults can absolutely change that picture more quickly than I've ever imagined, much more quickly. Um, now, we do have mental health professionals on our staff. We do work with folks who at times have uh, either crises or challenges. Uh, and, but many of our students, believing in them is such a powerful, powerful elixir. Um, and what we always say is, you know, it's, it's authentic. You have to be authentic. And as I'm sure in your program, students know in a minute whether you're real or not and whether you truly care or not. Um, and uh, so we'd be happy to connect and see how we do that. You know, it's funny. I'll tell you one story. We had a gentleman, uh, Warren, who I know very well, and he, um, he was in the program about, about six, seven months, and he and I had gotten close. He was my advisee, so I spent hours with him. And, you know, I talked to him. He said, you know, Jerry, my family's been known to the criminal justice system in Boston for a long time. And in fact, the assistant DA was at my house last week, and I said, do you know this family? And he said, oh, yeah. <laughs> they've, they've had a lot of brushes with the police system. And, uh, and so Warren told me about that. And, uh, 
And then I said, he said, Gerald, you have to, he said, I can talk to you now because I've been in this program enough that I have a different view. But here's the way I thought before year up. He said, I honestly thought I'm dead or in jail by 21. Like I predetermined, that's my destiny. I'm dead or in jail by 21. So because of that genuine belief, there are no consequences to my actions. Right? So if I want, he said it to my face, if I want to rob you, man, I'll rob you because it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. I know where I'm ending up anyway, so why do I care? And he said, having been at year up, I realized that there are positive consequences if I make positive choices. And he's, for him, that was a revelation that making good choices had good outcomes appended to it. Uh, and his, I promise you, his life's been changed. Uh, he changed his life uh, because of that knowledge. And, um, and then I started studying about hopelessness because I, I didn't know much about it. And I read the text and the abstracts and the research uh, about hopelessness. And I realized it's actually a psychological condition that people fall into if they don't believe there's an option for them to go forward in life. And so I said, who, so who's responsible that Warren felt this way, right? Sure, we can sit there and say, look, Warren, it's you, buddy. It's your fault. If we, if we, that is, that is the, the most incorrect thought I can imagine in my life because I, I know that not to be true. Absolutely, Warren has some responsibility, but we as a society have responsibility as well. Um, to think about why did Warren at the age of 15, 16 conclude that? Uh, and, I, and the fact is that young man uh, who uh, is now fine, I talked to him, and he's, he ended up saying, I don't want to go into technology, which is fine. He ended up getting his CDL, his commercial driver's license. Um, and he said, I think I'm going to be better doing that. We talk a lot, and, you know, our young adults can do so much more than we give them credit for. You know, and it's, but as you do every day, is believe in them resolutely. Thank you. Yes, sir. And then I'll go here. Yes, sir. Oh, um, my name is Colin Tingale. It's a pleasure to meet you. Thank you. Um, I uh, became aware that you were, being, were going to be here today. Did some research about yourself and your organization. Very much um, impressed. I don't know whether or not you hit upon this. Um, I'm a 2010 Open Society Institute Fellow. Mm. I received my fellowship for using theater, filmmaking, and new media for social justice. Mm. I've been teaching for six years my theater and filmmaking program at East Baltimore Middle School. Wonderful. Um, And for the last year, I ran an organization started by actress and activist Sonia Song of the TV series The Wire. It's called Rewired for Change. Mm. I'm no longer the director. She's moved on to a new national initiative. I was operating the program here locally for a year. Um, one thing I want to ask you just very candidly is the dynamic of race. Um, people usually, unfortunately, associate the, the young adults who are in these precarious situations of being of African descent, quote-unquote, you know, um, black youth. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's also a very large percentage of white um, youth and Latino youth, but a lot of times due to racism, children of color um, ran into this issue. Mm-hmm. But what I want to talk about is being someone who's in the human empowerment arena, um, do you find, and I've noticed this, and I think people who are going to be honest about it can see this, that when you as a white individual go into an impoverished, challenged situation, you, it appears to me that a white individual in our society that's perceived as being powerful will get um, a lot more respect, a lot more belief and follow through initially because people of color, particularly from marginalized communities, may perceive you or any white individual as the status of power and success might give them more entree and access to the things that they want as opposed to someone who may resemble them whether they be Latino, whether it be an African person, when I say African, I mean black person, mm-hmm. someone who looks like themselves. Um, and, then, and then not understanding that I too could have the same access to the information, but you simply being a white person, because of the perception in society, you will give them more access and uh, um, mm. gaining the success that they may want and choose. I've seen that numerous times in various scenarios where folk will just gravitate towards the white, the white individual. And I said, well, this, you know, I'm sorry. I, I, I had to tell the brother, young brothers, I said, you know, they work for me. Right, <laughs> right. The, the right. access to the resource they're going to come to, they got to come to me to get the okay to do it. Right. And that was told to you, but the, in 
enculturation of what is perceived as being powerful, right. a lot of folks of color in challenging situations will gravitate towards the white individual, hmm. seeing them as the template or the the example. You white person, white man can get me what I need and what I want. Where this person looks just like me hmm. will not be able to do it. It's, it's interesting. The um, about four years ago. Uh, as, I, as we saw as an organization, maybe five years ago now, issues of race that would come up around the country, uh, we made a, a very, very deep organizational commitment to what we call diversity and cultural competency. So you say, well, what, what does that mean for an organization like Gear Up? It's trying to actually think about the question you just asked and actually have authentic conversations. And we have 300 staff, probably 65% of color across the country. Um, and so our students are probably 98% of color, 95% of color around the country. So we have to talk about, well, what, what are we teaching students about what it's like to go into a largely white work environment? And who's teaching those students? And what are they saying? And how are we advising students on things that uh, some uh, Caucasian may not have knowledge of? I can, one of the chapters, uh, piece in the book about why we started to delve deeply into diversity and cultural competency and to try to build our own competency as an organization, a white staff member was saying to a young student who had braids, uh, who had dreads, hey, dude, you're going into a you know, pretty serious company. You may want to cut those dreads off. Not realizing that that was culturally a big part of that young person's life. And the person of color said to the Caucasian, hey, look, you're off base here. Tell that young man that he should cut his hair. Do you understand anything about what dreads mean in the society and the culture. And so what's the space that we can talk about that authentically and learn from each other and get better? Or um, when I first so, – so we made an organization commitment to do that. That's been probably the best single decision we made in the last five, six years, like to really have real conversations about what does uh, unearned privilege mean, right? And also if, learning to compromise in right. a situation with an employer not to devalue yourself and what right. you pride in. Absolutely. For African women, my wife yep. who just stepped out, just received her doctorate. Yeah. And she wears her hair naturally. Yeah. She did have locks at one time. Yeah. And now she's wearing, you know, twists. And sometimes she wears it simply natural and very kinky. Yeah. And that's a dynamic. Here she is with totally. a doctorate. But the preception, everything else that she moves through the... Ivy League hallowed halls is, you know, much different, but people will focus on that as opposed to her vast credentials. Totally. It's, and so that, the whole issue you just raised is one that our hope is our organization gets good at being able to th- talk with young people about that from a s- somewhat consistent and helpful point of view. I think you raised a fascinating issue. It, just to go a little bit to your question, when I first went into Boston, I lived abroad, I came back here to start year up, and uh, went into our urban communities, uh, and people basically said, what's a white guy doing trying to come help the inner city, and, and are you authentic, and how, what's your motive, what's your motivation? And I, and I honestly said, look, there's nothing I can say right now that would appease you, so I'm not going to try to do that. I'd only ask to take five years and look back in five years and see whether we've done a good job to serve young people in the community, and please judge us based on that. And that's all I can ask because I can't say anything. I can't tell you my motivations are good. Just judge us by our actions. Um, but we, we talk uh, a lot about, for Caucasians, what's it mean to be an ally, right? How are you an ally in this? Because white people will say things to white people that they would never say to a person of color, right? I've been in, the, in many rooms. 20 years ago, I wouldn't know what to say. I wouldn't know how to take a person on in a constructive way about why did they say something which was insensitive. But now, because of the work we've done as an organization, we try to say, um, okay, what's the role of a Caucasian as an ally in issues of social justice? And how do you help teach what that looks like in practice? I had it just the other day. I was at a dinner party, a lot of people, and someone said a really uh, insensitive comment. uh, And I thought, boy, am I going to get angry? Am I going to yell back? Am I going to not say anything? Am I going to... And and luckily, because we've done some training around this, I can ask questions now. Yes, an interesting point of view that you think the problem is limited to black people who don't want to work hard. Okay, can I ask you a question? From where did your opinion come? And has it been your observation? Help me understand and start to ask some questions because pretty quickly he's going to tie himself up and pour logic. 
and get him to realize actually what I said there's very little basis for what I'm saying as opposed to say man that's a dumb thing to say you're an idiot um, which means I've lost my chance to educate I mean I always say don't assume maliciousness when ignorance will do right there are a lot of times when you know people are just can be ignorant but I don't think many people are malicious at their core and I think it's also with lack of exposure, lack of education, um, and uh, you know. So, but year up, and we write about this a little bit in the book. But if you say, "Why am I proud?" I'm proud because this organization truly has tried to take on the question you asked in a really authentic, deep way. And we spend hours and hours at boards around the country trying to make sure that we're doing this right from the perspective that you mentioned. And it's not easy, and I'm certainly not a perfect leader in it, and I'm learning as well. But we took it on, and I have company, organizations all over the country coming to us saying, how do you guys do it? We can't talk about race at the board level. We've got these rich investment bankers, and we're going to talk about you know, race, and, and that's going to be it. And I said, we took it straight on. We showed all our board members videos of redlining, yeah. right? Real, we, sh- we had our board members delve deeply and I had like 75-year-old folks from Atlanta who may have had some slightly different perceptions. And, and they came and said to me, I had no idea this was my responsibility as a board member. I now get it. And I said, at 75, I didn't think I'd learn stuff like this. So I could have said that, gentleman, he's not going to learn. He's forget it. He's passed. We should believe in our adults as much as we believe in our young adults. We should believe in our boards that, that believe in people that they can change if educated. And so much of this is, to me, about authentic education in emotional education, not just intellectual education. Um, may I'd love to connect you with some folks here and see what you do and how you do it, and I think it's really important. Yes? Thank you. Mm. National Association for Developmental Education. I was a services provider for the Baltimore City School System K through 12 population, and uh, now I see students in private practice pre-K through college. Mm-hmm. I've been an expert witness in court, and I've written for the Maryland Bar on ways to get better services for students with learning differences. Um, one out of five has a learning difference, one out of six has dyslexia. Mm. Association, whether they're the Autism Society or uh, Children and Adults with Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder, there's a type, this is what they believe, that can't learn. This is not my experience. Mm. And um, in the studies where they have photographic evidence, microphotographs, uh, fMRI, brain scans, they'll show you there's a type that would find in grade school and stay fine in high school, the ones that improved, and the ones that never improved. So then they had access to um, free lunches, which means that their parents might have worked two jobs, never helped with homework, etc. Mm-hmm. That's not the answer, because there are the free dyslexia tutoring service that has the same requirements for eligibility, and they learned. So I thought, well, they're doing one-to-one services, so am I. Mm. That's not me either, because there's a wonderful system called the Early Sunday System, the Sunday System, S-O-N-D-A-Y, and she has the same results that I have. The students advance one year in reading comprehension in about eight weeks. Wow. And um, hmm. the difference is in methodology. Yeah. So I'm wondering, from what this lady said earlier about discouragement, if you encounter students with have which have learning differences, mm. which you provide for them, because my guess is a lot of the students that drop out, one-third of entering college freshmen has a learning difference and 50% drop out. Mm. Um, what happens is, in general, they cut the work in half and uh, require 80% accuracy to push through. And when they graduate, there's nothing on the diploma that shows they really are not as skilled as they might otherwise be if they have that kind of diploma. So I'm wondering, do you identify, do you receive a lot of that population? What do you do for them? How do they make it in your organization mm. in general? It's a, it's a great question. And I think we've probably evolved 
uh, over the years. So in, at least um, in the state, I'm, I'm on the Board of Education for Massachusetts, and special ed tends to be, we have a four-point system of degrees of uh, disability that a person may, uh, may have, so 0.1, 0.2, 0.3, 0.4. Um, we absolutely, at times, have accepted students that we couldn't serve well because they learned in a way that was different to the way we were generally able to teach. And so the question is, how can we expand the ways in which we teach? We tend to be more uh, hands-on rather than didactic by nature. Just the way in which we teach tends to be a little bit more uh, inclusive, I would say. Um, but I wouldn't say that Europe is gifted at dealing with someone at the 0 0.3, 0 0.4 level of special education, someone who had a very significant processing challenge. I don't think we are able to do that. Uh, what I would say, though, is the gentleman Malik in the book, he was classed in special education. He, didn't, he absolutely did fine. And so they put him in special education, yet he actually didn't have a special, uh, a special um, he didn't have a disability that we could observe when he came to us. What we tend to do is we use a lot of tutors, so we will bring in adults and others to help tutor students should they need it. Uh, we do work in developmental education, uh, typically around English and math, because the students may come with gaps in both English and math. Um, but I would not say that we are uh, a program that has, uh, can take on any type of learner and be successful with any type of learner. I think it's one in my position has to be very careful of are we the right next step for a young person and what can we serve well and how does our teaching capacity flex to meet the needs but also know where can't it flex and try to be thoughtful about it. Um, the only question, may I, may I sure, ask sure. you to what happens to the students that you are unable to serve? Right. And um, well, tutors are really great. Um, many of them volunteers. That's right. Yeah, I accepted. The, uh, the totally. Methods, you know? But what I'm doing is unique is to develop their bit of processing first. And then we right. learn not only academics, Right. It sounds like we should be talking to you. Okay. Um, I'd love to. And I will say one thing is if you get through our process, our admissions process does, you know, we interview students, we talk to students about where they're from. If they have an IEP, at least an individual education plan, we'll try to understand what's happening and where they're from. Um, if we can't serve a student well, we will literally move heaven and earth to find them a program that would be the right next step for them. We, we're not, uh, we don't leave young people hanging. It's just not our philosophy. Um, you know, and I bet we sp if you added up all the time we spend placing a student into somewhere else that isn't measured or we're not seeing, that's not a quote-unquote success from our metrics, but it's a success from the fact of our integrity is to actually serve young people well regardless. Um, but I'd love for you to talk with uh, Lemaitre and other folks here. And if we can learn from you, look, we are voracious learners and we care about one thing only, is our young adults doing well and how we can serve them well. Yes, ma'am. Thank you for an amazing story about an amazing organization and your passion and integrity. Thank you. Um, I work for an organization that tries to create opportunity for people through housing and um, stronger communities that are linked to different opportunities and mm -hmm. education and transportation and jobs. So I was really um, curious about the story of Cassandra. And mm -hmm. My question is, what role does housing play in your program? And why was she mm. not slide in Central Park? Mm. Um, does it not provide housing? So that, uh, we will generally, when we set up in a city, we'll try to figure out who are the other organizations around us that we want to try to build relationships with. So in New York, it would be the Settlement Houses, our very important partner of ours. Uh, it could be uh, mental health at a very significant level, substance abuse. Uh, and we have mental health professionals, but if someone lapses back to addiction, they don't need Europe anymore. They actually need addiction counseling. Uh, with housing, uh, we have done a whole bunch of uh, things to try to help our students to get to the front of the line, as simple as that, because there are long lines when it comes down to getting housing. What we're much more likely to do, which we did with um, Cassandra, is are there other opportunities for students to help one another? Uh, is there, a, you know, help them problem solve what might be the options, whether it's a cousin or a friend, or where could they crib for a while, and how to help them problem solve? 
And yes, we've gone to the lengths at times of helping them get a first month deposit if they had to do that because students are on a stipend when they're with us. But to, you know, as most people know, you've got to have a first month's rent, last month's rent, pretty bloody expensive. Um, so uh, when that situation happens, we're going to try everything we can to support that person. Um, although I would say if you look at housing in, in uh, New York, I mean, like the chairman of the housing authority is a good friend of mine, but I've taken time to build that relationship. Um, but it's still not a perfect system. And unfortunately, folks in this country, you know, we want to get our folks to the front of the line, but there's still lines to somehow deal with housing. Um, but we're, we're, I'd say we're probably as good as you can get, given the fact that we're not a housing provider, um, to help students problem solve. Especially child care is a big issue for us and help students problem solve around child care. I mean, it may entail working directly with housing developers. We work That's on right. Yeah. Teachers. Yeah. Work out beautifully because they're coming from all over the country and they're living with, with their peers and you know, yeah. able to afford yeah. My my current mentee, uh, who's a lovely young man, Boise he Love, he just started his internship at Harvard and uh, he's just beaming. But he came, he was over my house a lot and that uh, so much so that I was starting to question what's happening. And I would drop him off at night in uh, in Roxbury where he lived. And that, finally, you know, are you, are you safe right now? He said, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty safe. I said, well, how many people live in your house? He said, oh, I don't know, 15? I said, okay. Are there any guns in your home? He said, no. Are there any uh, drugs in your home? He said, no, they're not, not really. I said, well, what? But you're spending a lot of time here, and you spend most nights till the library till 12 o'clock when they kick you out and you have to go home. So it's, something's not right. He said, well, I do have a brother who's uh, schizophrenic, and he gets pretty violent. And uh, I, I just can't study. I can't get anything. It's really hard to get anything done. Um, and it's and I want to do well in this program, but it's really hard to be home because we all live in, you know, we're sharing bedrooms, and it's pretty uncomfortable. Um, and, you know, so uh, so his option was to get into the Northeastern Library and stay there till 11 or 12 at night until he said he had to leave, and uh, we could do all the studying in quiet. Um, so part of what my job is is to help him Truly understand if he's safe. Like, what is, what is his situation? And then say, okay, at this period of time, if he can endure that. Uh, so he said, first of all, can you move in with one other student? So we've gone through students in the program who we might move in with. Talked about how much savings does he have if he had to pay $400 a month for rent, right? And so literally helping him become a problem solver. Uh, and then say, look, it's not too long before you're going to have a job because I'm telling you, Harvard's probably going to hire you. Um, and then you're going to make enough money to move out on your own. So let's piece this together. And so part of my job is to be a, um, a consistent, thoughtful voice to help them solve problems, but we can't just solve them for them, um, is, our, is pretty much, is, we don't see us, our role is doing that. Um, let me do this, I want to be respectful of time. This clock here says 2.58, which I want to be respectful of, um, I believe said an hour. Um, I'll happily stick around for a minute if folks had any questions. And uh, I will say that a lot of folks here who have served uh, as we serve in our organization and serve young people, um, so I want to uh, bow to you as brothers and sisters in, uh, in a journey to just help young people uh, get what they need to be successful. And I generally believe there's, uh, what's wrong in America can be fixed with what's right in America. And, and uh, part of what's right in America is hearing what you're all doing. So we're, we're just on to work with you all and try to, to make a dent in uh, some of the challenges we see. So uh, thank you very much. It's a real pleasure. Thank you.